Good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning, good morning. If you could grab a seat. Good morning, church family and friends. It is good to see you here. I see some new faces, so along with Pastor Charles and Pastor Cleet, I have the privilege of serving as one of the under-shepherds of this church. I'm glad you're here because that means you have not yet been touched by the, uh, let's call it a rapid weight loss flu uh, that seems to be going around the church. I was barraged with texts this morning uh, from people saying they are not feeling well. That's not a great way to shed holiday pounds, but uh, glad you are healthy and uh, may you stay healthy. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. There's nothing confrontational, countercultural to that text, of course, is there? Thank you, Tina, for being brave enough to read that text to start our service. I would ask you, I just want to read one verse from this text, and I want to pray. Would you stand to your feet out of respect for God's word as I read just one verse? First Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So it reads the words of the living God. Father, would you open the eyes of our understanding? Would you do the Romans 12, 1 and 2 thing? Would we experience the renewing of our minds? Um, Lord, we are um, in an atmosphere and a culture that would not only not receive the things of this, but actually would caricaturize it. And we succumb to the fear of man so easily. We want to walk in the fear of the Lord. Um, a filial fear. We're, we're, we're sons and daughters of you. You've adopted us into your family at the cost of the blood of your son. And Lord, we want your kingdom ethics, not the ethics of this world, where it would not be consistent with your character. So Lord, would you, would you speak to our hearts? And in the midst of this, would we not lose the big picture that ultimately this is all about Christ crucified for our sins Christ raised again for our justification, Christ ruling for our good, and Christ coming in glory. We love you, Lord, and we want to love you more in the way that we live. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, it was January the 1st, 1929, when the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets squared off against the University of California Golden Bears before 60,000 fans in Pasadena at the Rose Bowl. Midway through the, I don't want to talk too much about football, being a Michigan fan, but I'm still going to start off with this illustration. Midway through the second quarter, California Golden Bear middle linebacker Roy Regal scooped up a fumble, started to run, was hit uh, spun around, continued to run, and man, it was off to the races. 40-yard line, midfield, 40-yard line, 30-yard line, 20-yard line, 10-yard line, 5-yard line, and just as he was about to cross the line into the end zone, he was brought down by an army of tacklers. But the first one that got his hand on him was his own teammate, 
Benny Lom. And you would ask, why would his own teammate help bring him down just shy of the goal line? The answer is because it was the wrong goal line. He was running the wrong direction. When he got hit and spun around, apparently he lost his bearing. And he ended up running the ball towards his own end zone. Now, he was sincere in, in running the wrong direction. He thought he was doing his team right, but he was, in fact, running the wrong direction. And for that, he earned a nickname which he would not shed his whole life, Roy Wrongway Regal. That's his name. Quite a story. I thought of that story as a sports fan because I, I read this story many, many years ago in one of my sports books as I myself just a few weeks ago was going the wrong direction. I'd taken my family up to uh, Frankenmuth to look at way overpriced Christmas tree ornaments before stopping at Tony's I-75 diner on the way home. They actually have BLTs with a full pound of bacon in it. And I almost, not, near, not completely, but almost pulsed it off. Fat, dumb, and happy from that one pound of bacon BLT. I turned my wheels, or so I thought, towards Detroit. However, I got on I-75 going the wrong direction. Was completely oblivious to it. Quickly saw a sign that said Midland ahead. I, I thought, that's weird. I thought Midland was on the other side of Frankenmuth, but whatever. I'm just enjoying this bacon. <laughs> I went a little bit further, and I saw another sign that Midland. And then a few exits later, like, it's getting closer, and it finally hit me. I am driving the wrong way. And by the time I, I figured things out, I had added about an hour altogether of unnecessary driving on. I was going the wrong way. I was quite sincere about it, but I was not heading south towards Detroit and home. We live in a time in which culture is rapidly racing the wrong direction on all things gender. Gender roles, gender distinction, and on and on. And unfortunately, many in the church are getting caught up in culture's wrong direction, actually joining them in that wrong direction on all things gender. And that's why today's text, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16, is going to feel, perhaps like for some here, like a harsh tackle right near the goal line, or like a sign in your face saying, stop. Just to, to put it bluntly, this text is going to cause perhaps some of you to bristle. And some of you are going to bristle for legitimate reasons, and some of you for illegitimate reasons. Let's start with illegitimate reasons. Some people will find this text offensive because they so saturate themselves in the cultural ethos of our society regarding all things gender that this is just, to them, this should be canceled. This is just over the top, just a thing of the patriarchy or whatever. Other people, I think, in a way, will legitimately bristle against this text because perhaps sadly, they've experienced people abusing this text and saying more than it actually does. And they've been hurt by it or they've seen other people hurt by it. And, and if that's you, and if we're having coffee, I'd probably spend the whole time having coffee, you know, saying, extending sympathy and empathy and saying, I am sorry about that. But then if I love that person, at least by the second time we had coffee, I would go on to say this. 
the way that we respond to the abuse of truth is not to reject that truth, right? But actually to recover it for what it really is. Or else we would have to reject all truth for what truth under the sun is there that has not been abused somewhere along the way, right? So the real question then for those who truly love truth is not, hey, what's the conservative or traditional position on this? Or hey, what's the liberal or progressive position on this? No, the real question is, what's the biblical position on this? And that's what Paul is going to give us in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, a biblical position on all things gender, roles, distinction, and on and on. So what I want to do, just by way of introduction, is quickly deal with a few details, give you the big idea, and then walk through kind of three big ideas that flow out of this text. Paul here starts in verse 2 with actually something that he's not done since chapter 1, complimenting them, crazy enough. He says in verse 2, now I commend you because you remember in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them unto you. He's commending them for two reasons, because they remembered him and because they were holding fast, is the word, to the traditions that he had delivered. And by the traditions, by the way, it doesn't mean like we think of traditions. You know, perhaps you would say we have, I don't know, split pea soup every New Year's Day because that's just a family tradition. Or the piano's always been there because when Mrs. Jones passed away in 72, she said she wanted it there. And we're just keeping it there. That's not what it means by tradition. Tradition here in in the original Greek actually is is a, a technical term referring to a body of truth that's been handed down either by way of rabbi or apostolic tradition. Now, obviously, they weren't holding fast to all the things being handed down, right? That's why he has to correct them in 1 Corinthians. And that's why here he he challenges them regarding their distortion of gender roles, gender distinction, and as it relates to the glory of God in all of life. Did you notice when Tina read our text that the word head, Greek word kephale, appears some 14 times in this, these few verses. It, it, like every verse, head, head, head. And then additionally, some eight times you have the word shave or shaven or um, covering even one time. So in other words, some 22 times in these few verses, Paul is referring to this, well, for most of you, hairy knob that sits on top of your neck. Some 22 times he's talking about our head. And of course, the great debate that people wrestle with when they come to this text is what? What is this thing about the head covering? What does the head covering mean? And, I, and, and man, I was, as, as Sharon in the pre-service prayer meeting, I was super glad that John preached two weeks ago, awesome message, brother. And then a week ago, uh, we had... Um, Life Challenge Ministries, that was powerful. That was just a great blessing for two reasons. One, great messages, and two, I had extra time. I don't know that I've studied for a message as much as I have for this one in a long time. I dialed into the Greek as best as I can with the training that I have. I read it again and again and again and again in the English in different translations. Um, I looked at views and views on views and views on views on views and views on views on views on views and on and on and on. And basically, there are three interpretations 
on what it means, what is the head covering referring to. The first one is it refers to a veil. Now that's not as a popular one, but some people pretty strongly argue that it means a veil. Second of all, some people would say, no, what is being referenced by way of head covering is some kind of external piece of uh, cloth. Maybe we would think of a shawl or a scarf or a, am I saying it right, hijab, um, or, or just a baseball hat or any kind of hat. So that's what some people say it is, just an external piece of cloth, some kind of head covering in that way. The third um, understanding is it, is it simply means a woman's long hair that's been pulled up or pinned up. And as a matter of fact, that might be the best rendering of this text because when we read covering, in every instance but one, it simply is, the, is, is a combination of words that says um, that which hangs from the head or down from the head. And in point of fact, the one time a word is used that specifically references an external covering to a person's head, it actually says the hair takes that place. Look at verse 19. No, don't look at verse 19. We'll look at verse 19 next week. Uh, actually look at verse 15. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for here it is, her hair is given to her for or as or in place of a covering. That's the one time you actually explicitly references an external covering. Now, as you know, there is much debate about what he actually is referencing when he talks about the head covering. And uh, I, I think it's this, and I've heard other people say this, if that particular cultural application was God was very strong that we made sure that we, we were doing that. I think there wouldn't be debate about it here, and I think it would be in other epistles as well. And the danger is that we spend so much time trying to figure out the particular contextual cultural application, and we will of necessity dig into that for sure, right, so we can understand what's going on, that we lose the big idea that we lose the universal, still-abiding principle. Are you all with me? That in other words, we, we, we're so focusing on, on the trees that we lose the proverbial forest. What's the forest? What's the big idea? It's this. God's divine gender design. God's divine gender design. What's the big idea this morning? God's divine gender design. And that's what, that's what we're going to look into. There are three things under that big idea that we need to, in his words, maintain or hold fast to. In fact, I would say three things that we need not just to tolerate. Culture wants to eliminate them, but three things we actually need to celebrate. Number one, headship in marriage. Number two, distinction in gender. And number three, God's glory in all things, including these things. Y'all with me? So if you have a handout, I've got some of the verses I'll be referencing, not all of them, but some of them. Number one, headship in marriage. We dive in at verse three. Paul wants them and us by extension to understand three things. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her 
husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, there's not much pushback on the first and third. People have no problem saying, of course, yeah, the head of every man is Christ, and yes, the head of Christ is God. But when you read, uh-oh, the head of a wife is her husband, people are like, what is going on here? This is so outdated. This is just like, this is, you know, just, and they, and they will call it all kinds of epithets. So I want us to understand what's being said here. It, it, it still is very strong, but let's understand what it means. He is talking about specifically a wife's relationship to her husband and a husband's relationship to his wife, specifically. He is not talking generally or generically about women's relationship to men or men's relationship to women because sometimes, honestly, it is overplayed and therefore abused in that direction. So some people use this to say women can't lead anything that would have men underneath them. That's not what that text is saying. Deborah was the judge. Just look at the Bible itself, right? That, that was a pretty much a, a pretty big leadership spot. Miriam was a prophetess. Phoebe was a deaconess. That's New Testament stuff now. In Acts chapter 12, we see that women were instrumental in the house church movement. And in our text itself, women can lead in corporate worship, in prayer, and in prophesying. I don't want to muddy the waters too much on this prophesying thing, so you have to wait till we get to chapters 12, 13, and 14, just around the corner. Women can lead lots of things. They, they, can, they can serve as CEOs. They can serve as vice presidents and on. But in marriage, and I would quickly add in the church, according to 1 Timothy 3, we're talking about the church, 1 Timothy 2, talking about the church, Titus 1, we're talking about the church. In marriage, this text, and in the church, those texts, headship is reserved for males. Headship is reserved for men. Is that clear? Now, let, let, let me kind of flesh this out a little bit. You should be asking the question then, well, okay, what does headship mean? Anybody want to know? We're going to answer, Okay. There is a way of avoiding what the Bible says while still acting like you believe the Bible. People do that all the time everywhere. And here's how they try to shave the edges off verse 3, the head of a wife is her husband, and make it more culturally palatable. They will say what's meant by the word head is the word source. That's all it's saying. That man is the source of, of, of the woman. I mean, that's what happened in the creation narrative. First Adam was created. God takes a rib out of Adam, and out of that rib fashions Eve. So it's simply saying source, almost like a bay might be the source or headwaters for a river. That's all it's saying. And people write copiously about that. But that's not what it is saying. Well, first of all, as our text will later say, it will actually say women become the source of men. The only man that was ever a source of a woman was the first man, Adam. After that, women become the source of men. But as we dial into the Greek term, if you were to look at ancient Greek literature from that time, 
In every case, about 50 uses of that word, head, in ancient secular or non-biblical, non-canonical literature, you would find that that word means the authority of person A over person B. The word head literally, literally means authority. The authority someone has over someone else or something. And when you go to the New Testament and you see it applied to Jesus, it says Jesus is the head over all rules, over all rulers and authorities, Colossians 2.10. It's not simply saying he's the source of that. It's also saying he's over it. Yes, Jesus is the source of the church, but he's also the head of the church. Ephesians 1 and 22 makes it patently clear when it says, and he has put all things under his feet and given him to be the head over all things to the church, his body over which he himself is its savior. And as we will see in Ephesians 5.23, it explicitly states Christ is the head of the church. So what does it mean to have headship? It means, what's the word? Authority. It means authority over. So when it's talking about a man or a husband being the head of his wife, it means a husband has his headship, his authority over his wife. Now I would quickly add to that though, it's a Mark 10.45 kind of headship authority. Do you remember what it says to Jesus? For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, how? By giving his life a ransom for many. So you're talking about sacrificial leadership kind of authority, right? And Ephesians 5.25 puts that on blast when it says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's a bloody, sacrificial, painful, servant leadership kind of authority. Do you see that? So we got to keep Scripture with Scripture. When it talks about a man's headship authority over his wife, it is a sacrificial servant leadership kind of authority. Good to go? Now, moving even farther into this. It's been noted that men are often reminded of that side of the Ephesians 5.25 side of the equation. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And sometimes pastors will joke, maybe you're aware of this or not, that Father's Day sermons tend to do what with guys? Say it again. Beat them up. up. You suck. You're terrible. Get better. Serve better, right? And guys, let's be clear. We need to be reminded, right? Like, we need to be reminded early and often, because we can be so stinking self-centered, of our calling of sacrificial servant leadership. Because what we do, men, and you have to admit this, we, we so often run into one of two ditches, often in the same day, brothers. The one ditch is the abdication of our servant leadership authority. We call that passivity, right? We're just passive. We're passive. We're passive. We're passive. We're not leading, or men can easily, sometimes in the same breath, run into the other ditch of domination, of this is my authority and that kind of thing. And I would quickly say to anyone here, any woman here, who is in an abusive relationship, you don't wait till the next time. You let people know now. So that we can help you and take appropriate action on that. 
because that is flat-out depravity. And I would also add, and any man who finds himself in that, because I, I know of cases and heard of cases where actually men are in an abusive relationship, all right? So what does it talk about? It talks about the, our side, husbands, as sacrificial servant leadership kind of authority. We need to be reminded of that. It has been said as well, however, that on Mother's Day, what does the message, what's the tone of the message quite often? Say it. Say it again. I'm, I'm glad you and I are hanging out today because nobody else is, man. No, nobody f- dares tread there. Um, I mean, obviously, these are a bit caricatures. But, like, you are the best thing since sliced bread. Right? In other words, women often are not as challenged as much on their side as men are. I haven't actually done a Father's Day or Mother's Day message in years for many reasons, including some of these reasons, but many other reasons as well. What is a woman's response to the authority or servant leadership, headship of her husband? Well, Ephesians 5 gives this to us. 5.22. I wrote the wrong references on on the handout, but you can see it. I want you to read it with me. Wives, submit to your own husband's as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Women are called to do what with their husband's headship? Submission. Now note here. Submission is not something that is forced. There's another word for that. That's called subjugation. On the other hand, submission isn't when somebody says, well, you know, I do what he says except when I agree. No, then that wasn't submission. That was just agreement. Submission is a willful submitting to the headship or authority of your husband. Well, questions for the ladies then. Do you reflect culture's rejecting of that in some kind of low-grade, underneath-the-radar resentment that maybe only your husband can detect? Some nervous laughs, maybe not so nervous. Or do you actually embrace it and cherish it? I wouldn't be a faithful brother to you. I wouldn't be a faithful pastor. I wouldn't be a faithful under-shepherd if if I didn't say this, that your heart attitude about this matter of submission to your husband's headship horizontally says something about your heart heart attitude towards submission to your God vertically. In other words, it's a worship issue. It's a doxological thing. Can't separate the two. So maybe a question to ask. This might make for some fun lunchtime conversation. Um, Ask your husband, in the main, am I a usurper of your authority? Do I constantly nitpick and challenge your authority? Or do I encourage it and, and joyfully embrace it and give you much grace when you shank it? In other words, am I a pain or a, am I a pain in the butt or a pleasure in the heart to lead? And husbands, you may have to repent of some things. You may have to repent of this abdication, domination, abdication, domination. Should be some, for some interesting conversations across this church family. 
Now, I would say to the wives here, and maybe future wives, there's a calling of marriage and there's a calling of singlehood. We hit that in 1 Corinthians 7. Let me, let me emphasize this. There's nothing denigrating. There's nothing demeaning. There's nothing diminishing. There's nothing devaluing about submitting to your husband's headship. Every good Trinitarian knows that the father and son are of the same essence. That they are totally equal. Son of God, you have God the Father, you have God the Son, and I would, of course, say God the Holy Spirit. Same in essence and being, right? Three persons, one God. Yet, as our text says in verse 3, he says, the head of Christ is God. And we understand, as we put scriptural truth with scriptural truth alongside each other, that that means the Son, though equal with the Father, joyfully submitted himself functionally to the Father's plan to reveal the gospel for the love of fallen humanity. In other words, Jesus said, my meat is to do my Father's will, right? He joyfully embraced total equals but he functionally submitted himself to the Father's plan. Now, listen. Men and women, husbands and wives, share absolute equality and dignity and value and worth as co-image bearers of the living God. And yet, there is a difference in function and role. You all with me so far? Because now having laid down the principle, and I took some time with that, Paul dives into the scenario that called him to remind the church at Corinth of the principle of headship and marriage. And it seems what was going on was this. Wives were praying and prophesying, again a few weeks down the road to prophesying, in public with the gathered church, either A, depends how you take it, with their long hair let down, or B, without a veil or covering. And what that communicated in that culture was A, that woman was not married, though she was. B, worse yet, she was sexually available. And three, potentially even worse. And so Paul writes, don't worry, we're going to come back to chapter 4 because guys often get a, or verse 4, guys often get a pass with verse 4. We're coming back to verse 4, but look at verse 5. It's why he says, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. In other words, when a woman was doing that as the Corinthian church assembled, when she did not pray in that covered way, she, in dishonoring her physical head, was also dishonoring her relational head, that is, her husband. And that's why he goes on to say, well, if you're going to do that, it's as bad as if her head were shaven. Or verse 6, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should just cut her hair short. That's what he says. And again, contextual stuff, we got to do some of that work. Slaves, prisoners, and prostitutes would have their head shorn, very short, if not shaven. It's a mark of shame. Anybody here ever watch the uh, miniseries Band of Brothers? Anybody watch that? 
It's actually pretty good. It's about World War II and what happened uh, in uh, invasion. But they, they, the Allied forces liberate a town that had been under Nazi occupation. And when it's, uh, when it's liberated, the citizens of that town take a woman who had been a Nazi informer, a Nazi collaborator, and what do they do? They shave her. Shave her bald as a mark of shame and march her through the city. That's what Paul says. That's how bad it is when a wife was disrespecting her husband in that time in that way. So he goes on to say, latter part of verse 6, basically, so you got to do what's right. Since it, is, since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Then you come to verses 7 through 12. 7 through 12 are fascinating. They really are. Stay with me on this. Because they root the call for a wife to submit to the headship of her husband in pre-fall creation. In other words, this was, this was a, the plan in creation before the fall of Adam and Eve. Let's look at verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head. Again, brothers, I'm coming back at you with this. Since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Quickly, here's what it's not saying. It's not saying that women are also not the image of God, something that Genesis 2.27 explicitly affirms. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them in his image. And Paul actually uh, referenced that in other places. Nor is he saying that a woman, whether she's married or not, doesn't immediately and directly reflect the glory of God. She does as an image bearer. What he is simply doing is referring to the creation order to show that a woman's submission to the headship of her husband is not a man-made cultural thing. It's not a product of toxic masculinity of men trying to somehow uh, sequester their power and keep women down. It's not even a result of the fall. He's saying it was God's plan in the very beginning. Look at verses 8 and 9. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So we should ask the question then, going back up to the latter part of, part of verse 7, how is the wife the glory of her husband? You want to know that? You're being such a kind audience today. You're not an audience. We're all worshiping the God, right? And we want to know from him what it means that a woman is the glory of her husband. And what it means is this. You go back to Genesis 2. He's deriving all this from the creation narrative. And in Genesis 2, 18, remember, Adam is alone. And God says these words that resonate in our souls. That's why we long for companionship. He said it is not good. This, by the way, this doesn't mitigate the calling to singlehood, 1 Corinthians 7, but even then there need, there's need of some kind of fellowship, right? We can't operate in isolation. He said it's not good for man to be what? Alone, I will make him a, here it is, helper fit for him. Suitable for him is the word, corresponding to him. So how did, what does it mean that a wife is the glory of her husband? She's the glory of her husband as a helper. And that's why he sings that song, finally at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. 
That's why it says in Proverbs 12, 12, 4, that an excellent wife is the crown of her husband or the glory of her husband. But he, but she who brings shame is rottenness to his bones. Now, this, by the way, I, I don't have time to expound on this, but let me just say this quickly. This, is, this, this, this helper to her husband corresponding to him is not a, he snaps his fingers and she jumps immediately. We're not talking about anything like that. What we are talking about is this. We're talking She's a helper that corresponds to who he is as together they serve the Lord. There is an interdependence. And by the way, I just want, again, I don't want to belabor the point, but I need to because this is so mischaracterized in in both directions. There's nothing denigrating about this. There's nothing diminishing, demeaning, devaluing because 16 times in your Old Testament that Hebrew word helper refers to who? God himself. God was Israel's helper. God is our helper. And like someone just said, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is called our helper. Jackie Hill Perry, maybe you've heard of her excellent quote on this. She said, it's not that God, she's a wife, has called me to submit to my husband because I'm just this weak, brittle back woman, woman, but rather because it's a way for me to mimic God. That's a good quote. And therefore, it says in verse 10, this reality needs to be represented. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. We'll get to that piece in just a minute. Now, verses 11 and 12 are there to help us not abuse this truth, okay? Again, this truth can be abused. Verses 11 and 12 are there. Like, nevertheless, is another stop sign. It's like, watch out. Don't abuse this truth. And it says this. In the Lord, the woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman, all things are from God. And all he's doing right there is he's making it clear, one's not inferior and one's not superior. It's a complementarian thing. Equal in dignity, value, worth, difference in role and function. And finally in verse 13 then, he, he gives us a question, and there's an expected answer. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And what was the expected answer? What was the expected answer? Is it proper for a wife to come? No, the, that was the expected answer. So winding up the first point, which by far is my longest point, so take a deep breath. Is the head covering for today? And my answer is this. I don't know. <laughs> okay, how do you like that? Um, maybe the closest approximation, because we don't know exactly what it is, somebody suggested a wedding ban on a wife. Now, that doesn't quite align. So you can wrestle with all that all you want. But wherever you land on the head covering question, what is not in question is the abiding principle of the headship of men in marriage. And the one thing a wife must put on is this. And I cross-reference 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 5 and verse 7. I'd like to read them. They're on the back of your bulletin. Do not let your adorning be external, 
the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. What's he saying? Don't put your hair together. Don't wear any jewelry. Don't wear clothes. Obviously not. He's not saying that. He's saying don't let that be what, you all, what you're all about, like the thing that, that drives you. Rather, let your adorning be this, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. You just, you just run uh, in an accordance or do this online. How many times God says something is precious in his sight and you'll be blown away? And this is one of them. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And brothers, if I had time, I would expound on verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers not be hindered. Now here's an all-points bulletin. Beep, 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 beep. Just as husbands often massively struggle to, to sacrificially love their wives, right, right, man? I know this is a crazy idea, wives, but you will sometimes struggle to sweetly submit to your husband. Wow, that's a revelation, huh? And that's why both us, men and women, must constantly look to the very one marriage was designed to display. Christ crucified for our sins. Christ raised again for our justification. Christ ruling for our good and Christ returning in glory. we got to focus and marinate on Christ and his gospel. And if you do not do that, if you do not marinate in the gospel, men, you will be passive, you abdicate your responsibility, or you'll be dominating. And wise, if you don't marinate this, you will not intentionally pursue submitting to the headship of your husband in marriage. And it will be for both of you to the great harm of the other. It will be to the great harm of your children. It will be great harm to the testimony of God, to the church of God, and to the work of God. In a world that already wants to do you a whole lot of harm. So verse 16 says, if anyone is inclined to be, inclined to be contentious, like push back on this, don't do it. We have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So number one, headship in marriage. And I, I do want to speak to um, single moms who do so much. <laughs> you, you obviously, because of being a single mom, have to do some things that you would not if you had a partner. And that's totally legit. That's totally legit. But if I want to be honest with you, there's certain things you just can't do. And that's why the church needs to be the family of God around families, right? That's why the church needs to step in and men need to step in. Brothers, right? So where we're aware this is the case, sometimes we got to not be passive, get off our rear, and serve our sisters like that. Amen? All right, we are going to run, 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 okay? We started 10 minutes late, so you got to give me 10 minutes extra, okay? <laughs> Distinction in gender. Along with confusion about gender there's also in our culture a lot of confusion about gender distinction. And that's just putting it mildly, right? And out of that confusion flows homosexuality, transvestitism, I don't think I'm saying that right, um, and just gender fluidity. And what's crazy is this, even people who would want to cancel everything I have just taught from God's word, they themselves, out of the side of their mouth, would affirm 
there is gender distinction. You ever heard of Germaine Greer? She's an Australian woman, now 82, one of the architects of the sexual revolution back in the late 60s, early 70s. She has written profusely trying to deconstruct the ideas of womanhood and femininity as constructs of men just trying to hold their power and keep women down. She's written about that profusely, vehemently, with great vitriol and venom. But a couple years back, she was asked to speak to the University of Cardiff in Wales, kind of like one of those commencement speeches. But within hours of her being billed as the upcoming commencement speaker, 2,000 signatures were gathered to say, no, she ought not to speak. You say, well, why? Because Mrs., I don't know, Miss Greer, I'm not sure which, I can surmise, I don't know. She had the audacity to write an article a few months earlier that said post-operative transgender women are, in point of fact, still not women, they're men. And because she wrote that, they non-platformed her. They canceled her. She even knew with a rejection of so much of this that there is a distinction in gender. But that is the medium we're swimming in, right? That's the water all around us. I mean, you have a former Olympic decathlete, Bruce Jenner, who when he becomes a transgender woman, wins the ESPN Arthur Ashe Courage Award. How courageous, right? Actually, crazy enough, Glamour Magazine names him one of the most 25 beautiful women in the world. And my toes just curl as I said that. You have, and this is not an exaggeration. This isn't just trying to cherry pick stuff. This is becoming pretty mainstream. Drag queens leading uh, reading hours for children in public, school, in public libraries. It, it happens. You have people are now being praised, especially as Hollywood elites and things like that. People are being praised by saying, hey, what's, what's the gender of your kid? I don't know. We're going to raise our, our child gender neutral. Let them figure it out. Like, how crazy is that? Like, they can't drink, they can't drive, they can't fight for the country, but they can figure out what their gender, what is that? And they will even give them puberty blockers, which will permanently affect their growth. Now listen, this erasure of gender distinction is nothing new. It was part and parcel of this ancient Greek, Greco-Roman culture that Corinth was situated in. Charles Corals uh, of Southeastern University, I think it is, he talks about Dionysus. Anybody know who Dionysus is? The god of wine in Greek. And, am I saying it wrong? Dionysius. I, you know I'm not going to be able to say that, so plug it in every time I say it. Dionysius. Sis, 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 sis. Anyway. This god in Greek and Roman mythology, the story goes, was the product of an illicit relationship between the big Greek god Zeus and a woman that was merely mortal, fully human woman named Simile. Zeus has this little fling with Simile, and the product is Dionysus. Well, Zeus's wife, again, Greek and Roman mythology, Hera finds out about it, and she's livid. He's been sleeping around on me. And so she hatches this plan to have Dionysus assassinated. 
Well, the caretakers, the people charged with the upbringing of Dionysus say, oh, we, 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 we got to protect him. And so they disguise him as a woman. They dress him in female clothing. They put perfume on him. He adopts female mannerisms, a female gait, female speech patterns, and, and all of that. And, and by the way, you know, Euripides um, uh, and other, Seneca and others uh, write about that in actually gross detail. Worshippers of this god Dionysus begin to refer to him as androgynous or as bisexual. And in fact, one of the ways they go up into the temple of Dionysus and worship is men dress as women and women dress as men. And by the way, that just illustrates the Romans 1 principle that whatever you revere, you will come to resemble, either for your ruin or for your restoration. You come look like what you worship. So when Paul comes to Corinth and likely preaches the truth of Galatians 3.28, there's neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ, they're like, oh, yeah, pff, we get that. We've known that for centuries. But of course, Galatians 3.28 has nothing to do with removing gendered roles, right, or gender distinction. It merely is saying this, that both men and women are equal heirs of the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled in Christ, in the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what it's saying. But what's happening, apparently, is some men in Corinth were grooming their hair as women. Probably had to do with length in some way or style. We're not exactly sure, but they were grooming their hair in a feminine fashion. And they were also doing the same thing they did in the temple of Dionysus and other Greek gods and goddesses, pulling their toga up over their head so they could imitate the appearance of woman as they worshiped that particular god or goddess. That's why, verse 4, Paul says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. You're not reflecting your head, Christ, in the way he intended you to as a man. Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head. And then verses 14 and 15, he says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has a long hair, it is for her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. In other words, what's he saying in those verses? Listen, he's saying this. Even common sense, even nature, even basic sensibilities teach us that when distinctions are blurred, and lines are crossed, it's just not weird. It's actually wrong. People say, that sounds like a phobia. Yep. The phobia of the living God. The fear of the living God. Somebody says, well, what about the Nazarite vows? You know, throw the hair out. Yes, but do not the exceptions prove the rule? And the principle applies there are distinctions by divine design in male and female genders. And these distinctions, of course, will vary from culture to culture. We can wrestle with that. I mean, good night. I suppose some dude wearing a kilt in Scotland is not the same as some guy wearing a skirt in Seattle, right? So they're, they're going you know, to change culture to culture, but distinctions remain and are to be embraced. And I'm not going to spend time delineating this or that. That's for us to wrestle with, right? But I think I can say on the basis of Scripture that men are to look like men and not women. And women are to look like women and not men. 
He created them male and female in his own image. Verse 31, and he saw that it was very good. So family, don't be intimidated or threatened into embracing the lie that recognizing gender distinction is somehow outdated, misogynistic, or a product of the hegemony, or however you say that word. I'm sorry. Gender distinction is there by God's good design. Amen? All right, I'm going to hit this last point and not push it to next week because it all goes together. We've entered a section where Paul is very concerned about the gathered worship of the church. He talked about women praying and prophesying and gathered services. Next week, communion. Weeks after that, the exercise of spiritual gifts as they gather. But this principle of the primacy of God's glory applies to all of life because all of life actually is what? Worship. It's ascribing value to someone or something. And life and the world is the stage of which the great drama of, un, of God's unfolding story of redemption is being played out for his glory. Now imagine going to a play in which one, none of the people would stay in their roles. They just flippantly went to this role and then that role and then that role. They just freelanced it. Would there be any meaning to that play? Would there be any point to it? Would there be a crescendo? No, it would just fizzle out in one big chaotic mess. Well, in God's great story of redemption, there is only one hero. It's not men. It's not women. We're the ones that need it rescuing, right? It is Jesus, just like Vince said. Christ crucified for our sins. Christ raised again for our justification. Christ ruling for our good and Christ coming in glory. And our roles then isn't some, I don't know what my role is, high, pie in the sky, theological stuff. No, 1 Corinthians 10.31 brings it down to the grit, grime, mess, and shoe leather of everyday life. Whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. It's about him. And in context in this chapter, it means we don't just accept. We just don't tolerate we actually embrace and celebrate God's good for us in our roles. Headship and marriage, distinction in gender. It is a way, verse 3, one more time if you look at it, we show that the head of every man is Christ. You say it says man there. Ha. That word man is different than the worst use of the word man in every other uh, occasion in this passage. It's, the word, it's a generic word for man, like we would say mankind or humankind. It's like saying the head of every person is Christ. The way we all glorify God, we all show that Christ is our head, is by embracing our supporting roles. And guess what? Everyone here has a supporting role. There is no hero. The hero is Jesus Christ. And that's why he says in verse 12, all things, all things are from God. Now, is the world going to like that? Is the world going to like this? What do you think? They will want to crucify you for holding these truths. You'll be mischaracterized, all the rest, stereotyped and all the rest. But don't be surprised because that's literally and actually what they did to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.9, none of the rulers of the, of the age understood this, for if they had, they would not have, boom, crucified, it says, the Lord of glory. And one motivation Paul gives us to embrace our supporting roles is verse 10, because of the angels. Did you see that? Be what in the world is that all about? We're, we're, we're shutting down. 
Because of the angels. What is that all about? No ink, no shortage of ink spilt on that one as well. But I think the ESV study Bible cuts to the chase when it says it simply is referencing that the angels are looking as the church worships. You know, it says in 1 Corinthians 6, you remember this, that one day we're going to actually judge these angels? Do you know in Ephesians 3 it says principalities and powers and rulers, they look on us and they're in, staggered in awe and amazement at what God is doing in changing sinners through the gospel in the church. In Hebrews 13 it actually says that when we show love and hospitality hospitality to strangers, we perhaps might be showing hospitality and love to angels unaware. Ephesians 6.16 says we actually wrestle against flesh and blood. We have principalities and powers that want us to reject this. And in 1 Timothy 4 or 5, Paul anchors his charge to Timothy with these words. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of all the elect angels. So yeah, the angels aren't just around, they're here. And they're watching this great drama unfold. We have our roles to play. And you might say, you know what, I haven't really played my role. I've, I haven't. I've freelanced it. As a husband, I've abdicated my responsibilities or tried to sinfully dominate. As a wife, I've pushed back against the headship of my husband. As a person, I've thought, ha, 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 gender distinction is no big deal. Joke about it, whatever. In fact, I've sometimes joined the world's caustic chorus against people who hold to the biblical view with gross mischaracterizations and jokes. Now, the good news is this, that our hero, Jesus Christ, Christ crucified for our sins, Christ raised again for our justification, Christ ruling for our good, Christ coming in glory, the good news is that he is so merciful and so quick to forgive. What, what, what's said in Exodus 34, the Lord passed by him and said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that's Christ. And apart from the fact that when we don't step into our roles, we actually bring destruction upon us and those that we love, apart from that, isn't God's wooing love enough to cause you to want to be in the role he has assigned you? Isn't that enough? He'll forgive you and he will empower you. And if you'll come, I end with this quote by Kathy Keller. Justice in the end is whatever God decrees. So whether or not you are able to see justice in divinely created gender roles depends largely on how much you depend on God's character, how much you trust in God's character. If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into his brow, your name on his cracked lips? And if God can be trusted, then gender roles with all of God's gifts to human beings are to be rejoiced in and enjoyed, not endured and resented. This is the word of the Lord.